The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have granted to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will lavish him upon us this morning. And particularly upon these who will be confirmed or received or will be renewing their faith faith. But Lord, I thank you for the rest who are here as well. For each comes uh, with needs, hopes, expectations, disappointments, anxieties, and fears. And we ask that uh, we may experience the power of the risen Christ in our midst. Come. And make yourself known and speak to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm going to try to do double C, I suppose, here uh, today. I'm going to speak some to the confirmands and those of family members of the confirmands, as well as those who are general parishioners of uh, the Church of St. Uh, Philip's. There's some seats here in the front. If those of you who are uh, leaning against the walls get a little tired of holding up the building, you can just come here and, and there are, what, five chairs here in the front? Oh, there's a bunch of chairs right back here. You don't even have to be up there where I can see you. You can hide a little bit down there. So come on up to a higher play. Confirmation, it's sometimes referred to as the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, it used to be that they were asked, the confirmands, do you believe in the Holy Spirit who came upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost and today comes upon you in the sacrament of confirmation? I think that's a good question, actually. Um, it was, uh, it's a good day in one way to, to have a confirmation because when the risen Christ came on uh, Easter evening, the first day of the week, he appeared in their midst. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. A good way to, uh, to translate that text is, welcome the Holy Spirit into your life. And I pray that you do that. You can, you know, as confirmands, approach this whole uh, uh, liturgical ceremony with the attitude of, of uh, Thomas. Thomas is in our gospel reading today. This Sunday is often referred to as doubting. Doubting Thomas Sunday. And Thomas is often referred to as Doubting Thomas. I, I think we've given him the wrong name because I don't think it's doubt that he has. I think it's disbelief. There is a difference between doubt and disbelief. Doubt is that quality that many Christians live with that in the midst of their faith, they have doubts that arise. 
like that man that Jesus met when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples were trying to cast out of his son an epileptic spirit. And they were making, the disciples were making no progress when Jesus showed up from the Mount with Peter and James and John. And there was a big commotion. And Jesus said, what's going on? He said, Lord, we're trying to, to free this young boy from this epileptic spirit. We're not getting anywhere. And Jesus turned to the young man's father and said, do you believe? And he said, I believe, Lord. Help, though. Help my unbelief. See, that's doubt. And many Christians live with that kind of doubt. Many times we live with it when we go from belief of a certain capacity that our Lord has to do something to the belief that he's going to do it for us in our situation. So someone who believes in the power of Jesus to heal may have questions about his willingness to heal me today or someone I love. Or that he has forgiven sins, but I don't know for sure if he's forgiven me for this one because it still troubles my conscience. Still needles me. Still wonder when the next shoe will fall about this sin. That it may catch up with me. That it may not have been forgiven. I know he forgives sins. But I don't know if this one has been forgiven. Am I free from it? See, that's doubt. But Thomas, he has an attitude of disbelief. He's chosen to disbelieve unless proven otherwise. We'll talk about that some with the sermon. He's chosen to disbelieve unless he does something. And some of you may be approaching confirmation that way. Let's just see if he does something but unless he does, I'm just going through the motions. <laughs> Thomas, it's a great name. It's a great name, Thomas, because once Jesus showed up and showed him the goods, he made the greatest confession in the whole New Testament. Sometimes I think and tell a person, I probably shouldn't say this as bishop, but you know, I said it for many times as a priest, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. It's been my experience that many times until a person has gone through a profound season of doubt and disbelief, until they've, they've walked away, if you will, 
they often never come through a true and abiding, vital faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. See, I grew up, I grew up in the church. And by the time I got to be your age, because I was confirmed at sixth grade, and you all are a little older, aren't you? Yeah? Junior high, middle school, what? Middle school, so a little older than sixth grade. I was confirmed at sixth grade, and then by the time I got into what we call junior high, seventh and eighth grade, I was kind of tenuous about the church staff. By the time I got into high school, I was pretty convinced that the church was filled with hypocrites, and I should have known I would have fit right in, but I didn't. <laughs> so about middle way through the journey of high school, I drifted away from God. By the time I got into college, I had buried what belief I had. Though I had experienced God personally doing something quite remarkable. That is, when I was, you know, I'm just going to freewheel this. Is it okay? <laughs> I'm just going get to, I'll get to whatever it was I, was I was supposed to talk about eventually, but I'm on a roll here, so I hadn't planned to do this. But, you know, you've got to follow uh, every rabbit that goes down a hole. You never know where you'll come up with. It's like Alice and, and, and the looking glass and all of that. Where was I? Oh, when I was 10 years old, fourth grade, growing up as I did in California, I was given a precious commodity, three precious commodities. I was given three desert tortoises from the Mojave Desert. You know, you can't own them today. You can be arrested for having one. And I had three. It wasn't illegal to own them then, but they're, they're an endangered species. And since they're considered an endangered species, you can't have them in your backyard. But a friend of the family gave me three desert tortoises. One was about that big. And I can't remember, but I think he was about 34 years old because I counted the little rings on the scale. And I had another one that was a teenager, about like that, he was 14. And then another little one, about like that, he was six years old. And I put him in the backyard. And desert tortoises are slow and ponderous, but they get things done. They burrowed under the, the garage and that's where they hibernated in winter, out in the springtime. And they'd feed on the uh, clover blossoms. And if there weren't clover blossoms and things like that, I brought out watermelon rinds and lettuce and various things for them to eat. Uh, and I kept the, the gate closed because, most of the time because a turtle, no matter how slow it is, likes to stay by the fence. They're fence crawlers by nature, just like human beings, always pushing the envelope. Well, when I was about fifth grade, sixth grade, I was up in the uh, uh, foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and I came across the western box turtle. And I snatched it up, put it in a box, and took it home and put it in the backyard with the desert tortoises. I need to tell you, a western box turtle can run rings around a desert tortoise. I mean, it is just fast in comparison. 
So there it was in the backyard with the desert tortoises. And I had to be careful because of somebody, and I had an older brother and older sister, and sometimes they're leaving the gate open. And so it was a summer day now. And where I grew up in California on a summer day, it was nothing for it to get up to 110, 112, 115 degrees. That wasn't unusual. And I know it's dry heat. But when it's 115, don't matter how dry it is, it's hot. So I went out to see how the desert the tortoises were doing. And I saw, and as soon as I brought out the watermelon rinds, the, the, the turtles were moving towards me. But no western box turtle could be found anywhere. So I began to look all over the backyard and under lumber and behind plants. and No western box turtle. And then I looked over at the gate. And to my, uh, to my dread, I was aghast. Someone had left the gate ajar. I knew for sure that western box turtle had gotten out somewhere in the neighborhood. So I went looking, traipsing through backyards and front yards, neighbors, gardens, tramping over zinnias and daffodils, and God only know what precious plants and flowers I tore down looking for the western box turtle. And after hours of searching, I did what any good church boy would do. I went home and knelt at the bedside. And I said, God! I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. <laughs> Just let me find that turtle. I'm all yours, Lord. <laughs> I'll spend my life serving you. You know, it was unfair of God to hold me to that. <laughs> you know, you press a young boy back in a corner, and you take away from him something he loves, and you get him in the place of vulnerability, and he makes foolish promises, and you hold him to it. So I get up from that prayer, filled with faith as it was. We went back to the back porch and surveyed the backyard. And for the first time, I noticed a galvanized tub upside down. You know those kind of galvanized tubs you used to take out to the picnic? You know, filled with ice, with soft drinks or beer or, or uh, watermelons? You know those things? It's turned upside down. And I heard this voice. The voice said, Mark, go turn that tub right side up. You know what I'm going to find under there, don't you? Western box turtle. There he was. How he got under there, God alone knows. Well, he showed up. But I buried I buried the prayer request answered until the age of 21. And in college, and reading all the philosophers that are supposed to cause you never to believe, I stumbled upon one who put me in, back in the corner where I was when I was 10 years old or 12 years old, whatever I was. And he 
explained my despair without God. His name's Soren Kierkegaard, if you ever come across him. He's a hound from hell, actually from heaven, and drove me into a corner where I made a leap of faith into what I thought was a void only to find a father and his son on the far side. And then I experienced, within four days, an overwhelming experience of the Holy Spirit. And I believed. But in between that belief, disbelief. I really didn't want God to show up. Because if he showed up, it meant I had to live the life with Christ. So, you have come to a place right now at your age, and where are the adult comfort man? Where are you? Okay. You're entering into a sacrament of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to anoint you for the ministry to which he's called you. You see, when the risen Christ came, you remember on that day the doors were locked out of fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. That's where Jesus always wants to be, right in the midst of God's people and right in the midst of our lives. He wants to be the center of your life. You know, he's the only person who can be the center of your world and it won't destroy them. If your parents make you the center of their world, it will ruin you. And it won't do them any good either. If you make some other person the center of your life, no matter how good-looking he or she is and how wonderful you think they are, you will destroy that relationship. And if you make yourself the center of your world, you will be insufferable to live with. I tell parents when they're baptizing their child, and usually... They used to be, when I was a parish priest, a little baby there looking so sweet. And I would say to them, I don't know this child, but I know this about that child. That child thinks that he or she is the center of the world. And that if they're un unhappy, you ought to drop everything you are doing in order to tend to that child's needs. And when they're three months old, you can, you can bear it. When they're three years old, it's not very cute much longer. When they're 13 years old and they're the center of their lives and your life, it is insufferable. And by the time they're 43, no one wants to be around them. There's only one person that can be the center of your life and it won't destroy them, and that's Jesus Christ. And the reason why it won't destroy him is he is the center of the universe. He's the still point in the spinning world. Through him, all things hold together in heaven and on earth because through him, all things were made and he holds their constituent parts knit together in his being. And on Easter day, he stood there among them and he said, 
peace be with you, and breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. So, here's what we're going to do today. Are they each coming forward to kneel? Okay. I'm going to do five things to you with my hands. Okay? Because you see, did you learn? They learned this, didn't they, Al? That a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace ordained by Christ or his church? <laughs> yes, you saw it coming. Okay, so. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace ordained by Christ and his church. What are the two sacraments that Jesus ordained, authorized, commissioned to be done in his church? Name one. Who said that? Baptism. Someone said baptism? Okay. And one of the confirmants, what's the outward and visible sign in, in baptism? Confirmand? Did, someone, did a confirmand say? Speak up. Water. Who said water? Well done. Very good. Water. Anything else besides water? Anything else besides water? Okay, somebody help him out. Anything else besides water? Well, we do use oil in our tradition, but you don't need to. If you were baptized as a Baptist, you probably didn't have any oil on you. So we don't need oil, but we do need this. Oh, my. Well, the Spirit is something you cannot necessarily see or hear or feel or taste or touch. Water you can feel. Sometimes it tastes and you can touch it. So that's an outward invisible sign, but there's another outward invisible something in baptism. Well, you don't need sponsors. I mean, let, I mean let's, uh, let's think about this for a minute. Let's say you're driving home across the Ravenel Bridge, and just as you're getting on to Mount Pleasant Side, someone careams off into uh, the bank of the river. You run down there. And they're leaning up against the steering wheel. And they say, I'm about to die, but I ain't been baptized. You say, you're in luck. There's some water right here. <laughs> and I was just in a bishop's confirmation class, and he said, in an emergency, anybody can baptize. So I've got a cup, and I'm going to baptize you. Now, what else do you need besides the water? You don't need the cross. Well, you need the cross, but you don't need it here. It is the name of God. You've got to say the name of God, the full name of God over them as the water is poured over them. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name, the ancient name, the full name of God. Okay. Wow, I got sidetracked on that one. But I expect that to come right away. Okay, so what's the other sacrament? Communion. Communion. What's the outward invisible sign? What's visible? What can you see, taste, touch? Bread and the wine. Okay. And the inward grace that comes 
through the waters of baptism as forgiveness of sins, initiation into the body of Christ, dying to the old life of sin and raised to the new life of grace, and the inward and spiritual grace in communion is spiritual nourishment, the bread of heaven, the body and blood of Christ, assurance you are part of the mystical body of Christ, assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Oh, how precious it is to be forgiven. Have you ever experienced it? It's wonderful. Okay, so now, Trad, huh? Nice to meet you. Jackson. Nice to meet you. They're not twins. I didn't even know they were brothers. But I guess they are now that you say that. Hello, Michael. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, you all know that's a sacramental act, right? This shaking of right hand. What's the outward and visible sign in that, in that sacramental act? What is it? Two right hands joining, right? Two right hands joining, right? And why the right hand rather than the left? I bet you were taught this. Were they taught that? I don't believe so, but you okay. seem to know. That's Avery. Yes. What's that, Avery? Okay, well, usually you had a sword on your side. We're out in the Wild West from where I came. You had a pistol right there on the side. So if your right hand's out like this, you mean you well. I mean you well. I mean you well. And you just bought a new car. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay. So, so, and the inward grace that's conveyed is friendship, well-being. Right, Michael? So I'll remember you next time I see you because in the shaking of hands, a relationship is made. Right? Hera. Somebody, by the way, of all you young guys, as a number four. You're the fourth one in the family line with that name. And somebody was a seventh. Are you the seventh? Wow. Okay. I'm the 14th. <laughs> that is Bishop of South Carolina. <laughs> so, so, now the outward invisible sign in confirmation is the laying on of hands of a bishop, right? That's for the outward invisible sign. And there's five things I'm going to do to you when I lay my hands upon you. So the first thing I do is I put my hands on your forehead and press down kind of hard so you feel the weight of the ages. 2,000 years of Christian history Press down upon your forehead. It's meant to be a weighty moment because you're stepping forward into the fullness of faith personally. And I'm the 14th Bishop of South Carolina, and I pray you see in your mind's eye, standing behind me when I'm uh, confirming you, I pray you see, standing behind me with his hand on my shoulders, a bishop. In this case, it's the 13th Bishop of South Carolina, Bishop Ed Salmon. Some of you know Bishop Ed Salmon? Okay, some of you knew Bishop Ed Salmon. 
standing behind Bishop Ed Salmon with his hands on his shoulders is Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison, the 12th Bishop of South Carolina. How many know, know Fitz? All right, standing behind Fitz with his hand on Fitz's shoulders, Bishop Gray Temple. How many of you knew Bishop Gray Temple? Oh, I'm pressing things now behind Bishop Temple and Bishop Carruthers. Any of you know Bishop Carruthers? Some of you knew Bishop Carruthers. Did you know Bishop Smith, the first bishop of South Carolina? <laughs> He's got his hand. Oh, see, it goes all the way back to Bishop Smith. And standing behind Bishop Smith with his hand on Bishop Smith's shoulders is the Bishop of London who first sent priests over to this colony in South Carolina. In fact, your rector, when he was the bishop, the, bishop, the, the, the rector of St. Helena's, invited the Bishop of London here to the Diocese of South Carolina and to St. Helena's in celebration of their 300th anniversary. Is that right? And the Bishop of London came, and he reclaimed the colony for himself. <laughs> <laughs> so standing behind uh, the first bishop, Bishop Smith, who's buried in the church, in the church, right? Some of you step on him every time you come forward for, for receive the sacrament. Buried right there. Stand behind him, the Bishop of London. Standing behind him, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who enthroned the, the Bishop of London as Bishop of London, all the way back to Peter and Andrew, James and John, in the midst of them, risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, when Jesus came into the room on Easter evening, the doors were locked. And he came in. I don't know if I have time to explain that or not, but we'll see. And he stood in the midst of them and gave them a commission to go and declare to all people the forgiveness of sins. And he said this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I want you to think about that for a moment. How do you retain someone's sin? He's given every believer in this room the power to forgive sin. And he's given everyone in this room the power to withhold the forgiveness of sin. And I want you to consider for a moment how you do that. Have you ever withheld sin, forgiveness of sin from someone? Personally. Do you know that if you never speak of the one who has the power to forgive sin, you leave someone in their sin. And that's kind of a scary thought. There are people you live with every day and see on a regular basis. And if you never speak of the one who forgives sins to them, You keep them stuck there. Kind of a haunting thing when you think about it. Because you have the power 
to speak of the one who forgives sin. And without that forgiveness, they're stuck in it. And sin does strange things to people. It leaves them in their guilt and in their shame. And sometimes the guilt and shame drives them into deeper sin, which creates more guilt. And more shame. We'll come back to that if I, if I have time. Maybe we'll end there. So back to your confirmation. When my hands are on your uh, forehead, pressing down, the risen Christ is commissioning you. You signed up for this. And he's sending you out on a mission to live for him. So the next thing I do after my hands are pressed upon your forehead is I take some oil and I make the sign of the cross on your forehead. I make the sign of the cross on your forehead to remind you of what it cost God to make you his child. You see, the gospel's free, but it's not cheap. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So make the sign of the cross on your forehead to remind you of what it cost God to make you his child. And then I take my hand like this and I raise it up and I invoke the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Jesus used three prepositions to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He said, I'm going away, but I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you another, like unto myself, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but you will receive because he will be with you and in you. Any of you ever gone whitewater rafting, by the way? Any of you went whitewater rafting? You got a life jacket on, right? And they put that life jacket on and they snugged it up real, real tight, right? And they probably told you, if you fall out of the raft, don't stand up. Did they tell you that? Why, do you, why don't you stand up when you fall into the water? Okay, if your foot gets caught in a rock, the, the current may take you down and you may not get up, right? And the first thing you want to do when you fall in is stand up, though. Isn't that right? Okay, so the good thing about that life jacket is it's with you and it buoys you up in the water when the Holy Spirit is with you. In the white water of life, it buoys you up. He buoys you up. So he's with you, and he's in you to transform you from the inside. But Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be my witnesses. And so we invoke the Spirit of God to come upon you. Then I take your face hands, and I want to see you Alice and Summers and Elizabeth and on down the line, I want to see you the way God sees you. Because you know there's all kinds of people in this world who will see you through your failures, your sins, your mistakes, your foolishness, your stupidities, and your failures. You know how I know that? I'm married. I'm married, and there's times when my wife, Alice, and I get in an argument. Believe it or not, we do. It's mostly her fault, but nevertheless. <laughs> and don't you dare tell her that. 
we will get in an argument. And in the midst of that argument, one of us will reach back 10, 20, 30 years and come up with something that the other one did and throw it right up there. Take that. Wham. I'll tell you, sometimes it's really powerful. You know what I mean? Some of you who are married, they can find something from 10 years ago that you you had forgiven the person for, and there it is again. But God doesn't do that. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. He says, I will take your sins and sink them in the depths of the sea. And then I like to say he puts a sign on the shoreline, no fishing allowed, not even by you. So I want to see you the way God sees you because God doesn't see you through your failures and your mistakes and your sins. He sees you by what you are becoming through Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his righteousness alone. And then I give you a slight slap on the cheek. Some of the guys, I give a harder slap. But it's not going to hurt. Even if it sounds loud, it's only because the microphone's nearby. And the ladies just give a little tap on the cheek to remind you this world is not a friend to the grace of God, but the grace of God in you is the best friend this world has. When it curses, we bless. When it presents, we forgive. When it persecutes, we rejoice. Greater is he that is in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit than anything that is in the world. Okay? So those five things. But I want to go back to the sign of the cross made on your forehead for the forgiveness of sins. You know what it cost God to make you his child. But I like to tell a story that illustrates that. Some years ago, and this is a true story, some years ago, actually in the early 1900s, there was a man named George Harley. By the time he was 35, he had five earned degrees. He had a doctorate degree in theology. He had a degree in anthropology. He had a degree in sociology. He was a medical doctor, and he had an advanced medical degree in the diseases of the tropics all by the time he was 35. He was married to a woman whose name was Winifred, who was seven and a half months pregnant. And they felt God was calling them to the mission field. So they got in a boat in North Carolina and sailed across the Atlantic to a place that we think of today as Liberia. And they started walking into the jungle because they wanted to go to a place where no white man had ever been before to preach the gospel of forgiveness of sins to native Africans. They'd gone into a place that no one had ever been before that was white. And they were setting up camp one night, and Winifred turned to George and said, George, don't look now, but there's faces behind those trees. George said, don't worry. Uh, God's with us. He'll take care of us. The next day, they went a little further. 
into the jungle. And they came to a bend in the river where there was a village. And both had the strong sense this was where they were called to do their mission. So they built three huts. They built one hut in which to live, one hut to be the medical dispensary, and one hut to be the worship hut. They had been there three years, and their little boy Robert was born. Every day, people would come to the worship, uh, the medical hut for medical attention. But on Sundays, the only ones who ever went to the worship hut was George and Winifred and their little boy Robert. One day, George was working in the medical hut, and he looked out of the window, which was no more than an opening in the medical hut, and he saw his little boy Robert run and stumble and fall. Robert got up, and he ran and stumbled and fell again. George said, oh no, not my boy, Robert. The tropics have gotten to him. George said, I rushed out, and I picked him up, and I brought him back into the medical room, and I laid him on the dispensary table, and I said, don't worry, Robert. Your father has five earned degrees. He will find out what's wrong. George said, I reached back for everything I knew, but I presided over the death of my boy, thousands of miles from my home in Norwood, North Carolina. George said, Winifred and I, we built a little box. We put some African leaves in, in it, and we placed our little boy Robert in there. We covered it up. George said, I picked it up was walking through the village out to the burial ground. And I was walking by the blacksmith shop. And the African blacksmith said, what, what do you got there? I said, I got my boy, Robert. The African said, I'll help you carry him. George said, we've been there for three years. And that was the first offer of help we had received. Well, the African and I, we got out to the burial ground, and we dug a hole, and we put the little box in it. We covered it up with dirt, and George said, I made a makeshift cross made out of twigs and bound string around it and stuck it in the ground. And George said, I tried to say some prayers, but I was so overcome by grief, I just collapsed on, on the ground, and I began to weep like a child for the past. Weeping uncontrollably, my, my head right beneath that little cross on that mound of dirt. And I heard the African running back to the village. He was yelling at the top of his lungs, White man, white man, white man, he cry like one of us. He cried like one of us. George said that Sunday, Winifred and I, uh, we dragged ourselves down to the worship hut expecting no one to be there. And the whole village was there. The next Sunday, the whole village was there. 
And that's the way it was from that time on. Well, George was back in the United States on missionary furlough, preaching to a congregation like this. And after the service, people were going out, shaking his hand, and one man stopped and said, Dr. Harley, shaking his hand, that was a powerful story you told. But you know what bothered me about the story? And Dr. Harley said, no, what bothered you about it? The man said, you had to give up your boy. You had to give up your son in order to break through to the people. And George looked at him with penetrating eyes and said, that's what God had to do to me. You see, when we say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he gave up his son in order to break through to the people that they might know the forgiveness of sin. But when the risen Christ rose from the dead and stood among the disciples, he said these words, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That means he's given you to the world like he gave his son in order to break through to the people. And I would not be fair to you if I did not say sometimes it will cause you to suffer in order to break through to the people. And part of breaking through to the people is to forgive sins and to announce the forgiveness of sins to them. Because if you don't, you're stuck in it. You had to give up your son in order to break through to the people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the perfect offering for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world.